Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Hello, leaders. Welcome to episode 32 of The Leadership Window. I am Patrick Jinks, leadership and strategy coach and president of The Jinx Perspective. And I'm thrilled with our guest today, a friend, an advisor, a leadership partner, a true leader across the state of South Carolina, and I know beyond, Tom Keith is right here in our little makeshift studios with us. He is the president of the Sisters of Charity Foundation of South Carolina, and that's a position he's held since about 1996. And under his leadership, to give you an idea of scale and scope of this foundation, the foundation has awarded more than $70 million through well over 2,000 grants across the state of South Carolina since its inception. And its current assets are well over $100 million. Uh, They do a lot of amazing things along their mission line of reducing and or eradicating poverty in the state because it just drives so many other things. This is a podcast about leadership, but through a social sector lens. So this is one of those episodes we get to talk about the social sector and how leadership plays in there. I am, I'm just, I don't think I'm going to cover all of this bio from Tom because uh, over 40 years, you can imagine uh, that a leader as successful as he is, has a lot of stuff to talk about, but he is, I, I can tell you this, he has two passions that I know of, and those are equity and fatherhood. Uh, I think those are two things that he has championed uh, for many, many years, and he can talk more about that when we get going. Uh, MBA at Winthrop University, where he uh, was inducted into their College of Business Pinnacle Society in 2008. He earned Clemson University's uh, Institute for Family and Neighborhoods Life Leadership Award in 2009. I could go on. There are several others. He serves on a number of boards, state and otherwise. Uh, Like I said, over 40 years of experience in nonprofit management in five states. I might, if we have time, you might uncover what some of those other things are because I'm not sure that I know them. But uh, anyway, as I said, the more important thing is friend, advisor, leader, just an overall great example of leadership uh, to why I don't think there's a a more credible leader that will ever be on this podcast that I know of than Tom and Tom. Thanks for carving out time and for coming all the way over here to the studio and doing this with me in person. I get to see your smiling face along with hearing that amazing radio voice. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Patrick. It's great to be here and appreciate you having me on the the program. Well, this is going to be fun. I think you know that this podcast is, yeah, it's kind of interview style, but really it's just kind of People get to listen in on a conversation and you and I have had some great ones and we just, let's just have another great one here today. Um, Start by telling us a little bit about, uh, I guess, first tell us a little bit about Sisters of Charity because it's South Carolina and there's also another foundation is it Cleveland, I think? Yeah, and so just a little bit about the structure of, of and, and, and maybe a brief history of the Sisters of Charity. Sure. The, um, it's, it's an interesting backstory. The Sisters came to the United States in about 1858, where they 
landed in Cleveland, Ohio, and began a ministry there, opening some schools and later hospitals and uh, active and very one of the initial co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the Sisters of Charity of St. Augustine were. And um, in, in the 1930s, there was a call for uh, by the Diocese of Charleston to find an order to come build a hospital and manage and run a hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. So the sisters in Cleveland took on that call and came down here, several of them, and helped build and run Providence Hospital starting in 1938 and kind of uninterrupted until 1995. Mm, okay. So... Uh, and there are. There are three foundations, Patrick. Oh, three. Uh, yeah, one in Canton, Ohio, one in Cleveland, and one in South Carolina. Uh, so those, all three of those are what we call health conversion foundations that right. resulted out of the sale of three different hospitals, including Providence. Right. Yeah. And I, uh, I have found these sort of hospital conversion foundations to be some of the largest and some of the most – at least for regions and, and localities to be some of the most impacting and leadership – philanthropic organizations. Of- well, you look look in South Carolina, you've got uh, J. Marion Sims over in Lancaster. you got the Mary Black Foundation mm-hmm. up in Spartanburg and a uh, a few others yeah. around the, the state, sisters, of course. So um, it, it was a new influx, and this kind of all happened in most cases in the 1990s. Uh, they had a new influx of philanthropic dollars into South Carolina where traditionally they'd been textile mills and community foundations driven and then and then a few of us uh, popped up to help uh, help uh, build up the philanthropic dollars to be spent in mm. South Carolina fascinating structure uh, we have talked with your team uh, mm-hmm. about um, the term charity you know sisters of charity and how much of your work is truly, what most people would consider to be just sort of true charity, right? Somebody's in need, you provide a need, but you're, you're taking charity to the next level. Maybe you can just say a little bit about this, but you're taking charity to the next level from charity to change mm-hmm. where, where uh, you're trying to eliminate the need for as much charity, particularly in this area of uh, removing poverty. Maybe talk a little bit about the difference between the charity and the change or the intersection between the two as the foundation sees it and how you go about your work in, in partnering with organizations across the state. We look at that, uh, Patrick, in a couple of different ways. One would be what we call the consequences of poverty, which uh, are, are kind of daily challenges that families have and individuals have living in poverty. Now communities have. And so... Uh, we we create buckets of funding that would support both the consequences and the causes of poverty. And so uh, an example of a grant for a consequence might be that we would support a free medical clinic or uh, a food bank or uh, a soup kitchen or other types of immediate needs that may maybe help somebody get their prescription drugs that they may not be signed up for or able to uh, incur uh, costs related to that. And then, and then out of the consequences, um, uh, we, we transition more into the causes where we look at what is, uh, what are the uh, systemic problems that are in play, whether it's, uh, you know, in our school systems or in our government structures or in other kind of uh, our uh, systems. Uh, for example, we're funding a couple of programs right now where, 
it's a reentry program uh, uh, for this. In this particular case, it's men, but they're coming out of the prison system, and we're trying to help them sort of reintegrate into society, whether it's in the workplace or education or reconnecting with their families, all, all kinds of things like that. So that's part of the system. And then the, the third bucket would be breaking the cycle of poverty where we work uh, like our early childhood uh, reading programs or after school programs and ways to really um, help move the ball forward if maybe the family structure is not such that uh, allows for that to happen. So we got local community organizations that are, that are helping do that. So th- those will be our three categories. Um, I want to get into leadership and I want to get, get into uh, your, your perspectives on leadership and the challenges across the sector, but I'm still fascinated a little bit, a, a couple of things I might want to still know about the, the foundation. First of all, I love, uh, I've been using the sort of difference between charity and change. And you've heard me say that I like your terms better, mm. uh, causes and consequences. Uh, that's better because the cha- charity to change is almost a, um, the premise of that is not quite fair because, you know, work on the causes is also charitable, right? You know, it's not, it's not that the change is not also charitable. So differentiating those two, I don't, I think yours is a more accurate way of putting it. So I, I really like that. Um, let me, let me, let me go here, uh, Tom, tell us how you got into this. Uh, what, oh, tell us about your leadership journey. Uh, I know that you've done some other nonprofit work, but just give us a, a, a quick path to how you got to this point in your leadership. Well, the sisters would say it's providential. I would say it's luck uh, in some ways. <laughs> Is there a difference? Yeah, 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 yeah maybe so. Well, they would, they would say it's divine intervention, okay. you know, at some level. So, um, I, Begin my career. I was a communications major in college and came out like most people at that time, or a lot of people that were in a you know in a specific profession-driven degree, going on to dental school or law school or something like that. And and I was um, looking, and I found an opportunity with a national nonprofit organization back in uh, in the late 1970s. Um, called Muscular Dystrophy Association, and it was well known then for the Jerry Lewis Telethon, you know. And it was so I, I was green; I didn't have a clue. And they had super training uh, to learn uh, about such things as cause-related marketing and and patient service programs, research programs, all that. And then I was there ten months, and the lady that was running the organization left. And guess what? I'm a 23-year-old, you know, 10 months out of college guy, and they, they hand me the ball. And it's like, okay, uh, let's see if we can figure this out. <laughs> so um, I was on a steep learning curve, uh, for, uh, stayed with them six years and, and moved um, uh, from where I was to Pittsburgh on a regional level and then uh, moved down south here to South Carolina and then switched organization, was, was, was with, with another um, uh, national health agency for about 10 years. And then I went over to Providence hospital and I got there and I was there a year and the hospital sold or two years and the hospital sold. And they, um, they allowed me and gave me the opportunity to be the first CEO of the sisters of charity foundation, you know, and put me in that role in 1995. And we opened our doors in the spring of 96, which happens to be this year, our 25th anniversary. And in a month, 
we will be crossing over the $80 million mark in, in grant making. So two big milestones this year for Sisters of Charity. That is incredible. Well, I'm not, we're not going to talk about your retirement and when that might be, because I, I think we've all decided it's not going to happen and we, <laughs> we don't want it to happen. But let's talk a little bit about succession, because as a founding executive director of this foundation and now 25 years and just amazing success, one of the tenets we talk about in leadership that is critical, and it's really critical, I think, in the nonprofit sector, just due to sometimes a lack of focus and sometimes a lack of capacity, but that's the continuity planning and succession planning and thing. How, how do you, how do you, you have a, you have a tremendous staff. I'll let our listeners know that of just tons of talent and bench depth. What is your approach to preparing those leaders for their next step up, whatever that might be in the organization? <coughs> Excuse me. You know, that's always a little bit tricky in, in nonprofits because, you know, you don't have this uh, vertical, <coughs> excuse me, vertical move forward, upward, like you might in the corporate world. But you're right. We have a very strong staff. And I have created, along with the Board of Trustees, a, a defined succession plan. So if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and I'm going to be out for three months, then we've got a plan. Six months, a plan. If I you know, am never coming back, we've got a plan. So I think that's really important that any organization, uh, and that's not a threat to the director or the president of the organization, that's just a necessary variable. And if you don't uh, have that, then you're just going to be shooting uh, from the hip uh, if something like that happens. So that's really important, I think. And I I always feel like culture is something that doesn't happen overnight. You build culture. You know, sometimes you weed things out that aren't working. You add new things. And we've been very intentional over 25 years to build a culture of trust, mm -hmm. a culture of transparency, uh, a culture of fairness, uh, with our uh, within our staff, with our board, with our grantees and others. And to me, when I leave, I, my hope and prayer is that, that that culture continues. That's really important to me because sometimes you bring in a brand new leader and it's like, well, I've got to make a bunch of changes. You know, I feel like we've, we've spent a lot of years making the changes we need to make in order to ensure our success. So I'm going to build on on that. And hopefully, you know, I've got several leaders, uh, uh, in the making at sisters of charity. Um, they're, they're all strong in their own ways and have really taken us to places. I really didn't, uh, suspect we would be, uh, in, uh, in this, uh, this amount of time. And, and I wanted to comment on one of the things you said earlier, people get enamored with, uh, grant makers and funders, uh, and they get focused on the money. You know, oh, wow, $80 million, that's huge. Or you gave us, you know, five $100,000 grants for five years, that's huge. And that is important. But at the end of the day, I've always believed that we're not in the giving out money business. We're in the change business. And the, the, the disbursement of grant funds is a tool to use to affect change. But there are a lot of other tools in our toolbox around advocacy, policy work, uh, capacity building for the nonprofits we serve, um, awareness sharing of successful grants back into uh, the community. This is what we found out. This is what can help you in your world kind of thing. So 
grant making and our relationship with grantees in the community is not a one trick pony money. It is a lot of moving parts if we're going to do our jobs well. Mm. Uh, I am struck by your, your foundational answer to my question about how you're developing your leaders was culture. And I love that concept of culture as a development tool. I mean, if you shape the right culture, uh, you shape an environment where any of the leaders inside your organization can step up and grow and flourish. So I really love that. I also will say, and I, you know, I'll probably do this a couple times throughout the program because of my, because of my work coaching nonprofits across the state. Um, your name comes up a lot. You know, the sisters of Chad. A lot. I'm talking to a lot of people who receive funding from you, for example. And I'll tell you what I hear. Um, I hear the names of your staff people. You know, I'll, yeah. I'll be talking to an executive director and say, yeah, you know, we're working with Donna on such and such or China helped us, you know, and yeah. I, I'm hearing these names. It's not Tom. Right. That's and, right. That's and, by design. And I got to tell it is by design because I've, wa- I've also watched you with your staff. I've been in those meetings. I've watched that distributed leadership and they feel safe and empowered to challenge you even if need be. And yet the level of respect I've also I've also uh, been privy to your board meetings and and with with the sisters there and the whole thing and the whole just the culture of respect that people have for each other, mm-hmm. but lack of fear to have the tough conversations. That's just an incredible thing to pull off. So we could take an hour and you could try to tell us how you've done that, but uh, that that just speaks volumes of the kind of leadership that you're bringing to the table. Well, thank you, uh, and I. I think uh, oftentimes leaders in the nonprofit sector get uh, antsy or get um, anxious about giving away or delegating too much authority or power. They're they're afraid, oh gosh, you know, this is going to be on me if it doesn't go well. And so there's almost this control factor that comes into play. And I think if you hire the right people and if you coach them up well, and then give them the responsibilities uh, and the freedom to do their jobs. You know, you if you have 100 jobs here and you put a 100 people out there, you know, not everybody is going to do the job the same way. If the end result ends up being successful, then it really doesn't matter, you know, that everybody follows this perfect template. Mm. So I'm all about uh, giving people the space to use their own style, their own talents, their own ability to get the work done, then ultimately, if I'm trying to shape everything, it's going to not be the shape, you know, necessarily that's going to be successful. So I think leaders have to um, allow this to happen. And they also have to have enough self-confidence to say, you know, these are these people, I try to hire people that are smarter than me, you know, because I think that's a that strengthens the organization. I don't want any people under me that are just going to say yes, sir, no, sir, and and wait for me to make the decision. That's not healthy for the growth and, and stability of the organization in the future. That's well said. I've, I've had several uh, Maxwell coaches on the program, and they will tell you, too, that not only does a leader have to create space and trust, uh, space for talent to grow, but you have to have you have to create space for failure. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to allow them to, if failure's okay, it is an option. It's not the desired thing. And the key is that we learn from it and we move on. But if they don't feel like, oh, I cannot fail or, you know, it's my job or I'll never get another chance or, 
uh, because that just that keeps people afraid of taking the leap. So that the idea of giving room to fail, uh, e- even when it's important, uh, but but it, you know it it's a three sixty. I mean, you have to have all the supporting components around that, right? Right. Absolutely. I interestingly, I had a nonprofit leader say to me the other day, uh, Tom, I'm just going 120 miles an hour. I can't go any faster. Uh, I really need to cut back. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling physically and emotionally, but I feel like I can't let up because if my staff sees me let up, then they're going to let up. Mm. And my answer was, I mean, who's measuring who here? You know, it's like you're holding yourself to a standard that maybe nobody else expects at all. That's just in your mind. And you need to, you, you can't pedal any faster. You know, you've got to work smarter, mm-hmm. not harder. And that doesn't mean you're lazy or you're, you're not productive. You just can't, because what's going to happen is you can't run a five mile sprint. You know, you can't run a sprint as if you're running a hundred yard dash because you will burn out and you will fall off the side of the track. So, and so will your team. So that's, it's an interesting dynamic. You, what the example that, that this leader is, is trying to avoid is if I pause, I'm afraid my team will pause. Right. Right. Well, yeah, (laughs) you should pause because they need to pause too. Right. Right. And you need to give them again, you know, space to pause. And I think sometimes leaders have these invisible rules in their head mm-hmm. that nobody really mm-hmm. has outwardly agreed on. So true. And you're just like putting pressure on yourself because mm-hmm. it's perceived that it will be seen a certain way. Or, and it's like, man, you got to give that up. So true. Yeah. So good. So true. Um, so from your experience, and, and again, having worked for nonprofits yourself for most of your career and now having worked with countless number of nonprofits and been in this sector, what would you say are the top, I don't know, two or three biggest leadership challenges in the nonprofit sector that you've seen and experienced or just continue to see patterns? And what are those top two or three leadership challenges that you see? Well, um, here in South Carolina, I, I'll tell you that uh, there is not, to my knowledge, a degree in nonprofit leadership uh, that is really addressing you know, the reality of a nonprofit. I mean, there may be college programs around uh, and certainly certificate programs, and I don't mean it that way. But oftentimes, my point is oftentimes people that end up in nonprofit leadership sort of end up there by happenstance. You know, they didn't, they didn't formally train to get in that position. So what, what I've seen in particular in South Carolina, particularly in some of our rural areas that you've got great mission driven organizations that are led by people that are passionate about the work but lack the ability and capacity to run the organization effectively. Mm. Can't really raise money in a, in a consistent way. Their board is not strong. Uh, they can't really put together a budget that, that is, you know, consistently good. Um, you know, they, they can't really market the organization to raise money, the program and serving uh, the constituency they're wanting to serve that's working, but they, they can't really scale it up because they're sort of boxed in by their lack of capacity. So I, I think, um, 
and you know this, Patrick, in in the work that that you do, uh, there are probably more nonprofits uh, in the state of South Carolina than there need to be. It's like we're a mile wide and inch thick sometime. Well, that's, uh, that's my, I would mile. say that about the whole country. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, think, right. I think, I think nearly 2 million nonprofits is probably a little more than we need in, in the 50 States across. Absolutely. Our union. Absolutely. But the reality is people can still start nonprofits. And even when there is an opportunity, maybe partner with others or merge or don't go out and start your own new nonprofit because you're, you know, passionate about something necessarily a lot of homework needs to be done but but nevertheless i think um in many instances organizations are are kind of stuck they may have budgets of a hundred thousand or less many of those came out of churches and our religious uh affiliations and that's great because in many of these rural areas you know, there is, there is not a lot of infrastructure. There is not a United Way in you know a lot of communities in the state. United mm-hmm. Way may cover that area, but they don't have a local office or don't local chamber or a local you know whatever. Yeah, they'll, the 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 bigger United Ways will formally claim a zip code so <laughs> yeah, that so right. that somebody has it in their footprint, but they're essentially just don't have the capacity to serve it. So most most of the religious institutions in these rural areas were uh, created these nonprofit efforts because of need you know there's nobody else offering an after-school program in whatever county there's nobody really that is doing some of this preschool education in the summer you know um or keeping kids at grade level during the summer those are things that maybe a school district should be doing or a a a a larger nonprofit. but the churches have found themselves being social service uh, providers uh, in in these communities, yeah, and I think that the church is a great example because there's things that they can do as a as a true outreach of a church, mm-hmm. and I I think um, I I've had this conversation with a number of people about you know too many nonprofits and you know so many small ones that don't have the capacity and it sounds like a slam on small nonprofits and it really isn't. Um, what I what I wish I could see more of is. The smaller nonprofits, instead of trying to sort of make it as a, you know, high competing, high profile, you know, stand on our own organization, partner more, collaborate more, be open to mergers, be open to shared services, be open to. uh, And so a lot of times it, it really is this pride thing of you know, and sometimes it comes down to an individual. It does. And it's like, I started this, it was my idea. And, you know, I've, I've been pushing this agenda and and we're as worthy as anybody uh, to, to get. And, and they, they are from a, from the standpoint of the cause, but foundations like yours, you know, as some, some, a shift I saw a few years ago, Tom, tell me if you experienced this or if you, if this is true about your foundation, but at some point when I was, uh, I was in Danville, Virginia, I was running the United way there. And some, I had, we had a, one of those hospital foundation conversion, uh, foundations, a big one, 200 and something million dollar assets. I knew and that guy, Carl, uh, Carl Stauber. Stauber. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I think it was Carl who Carl told me one time sitting in conversation, he said, here's the, here's the mistake is that there's a shift in funding where, the the more and more funders rather than funding something that absolutely needs their money or else it won't happen 
funders look to things that would happen even if they didn't fund it. Mm -hmm. Because what it says is I'm, I'm investing in an organization that has capacity, has willpower, has the, the um, diverse set of resources that is supplementary to ours. We want to invest in something we know is going to be successful, not we want to invest in something that won't happen on it, you know, that wouldn't happen without us. And I know that's a, that's a, that's a, a little too, too delineating of a line, but it's the philosophy that I think more and more funders have shifted toward it. Is it, is it right? I, I think that that is exactly right. For whatever reasons, sometimes funders can be risk aversive and they just, uh, uh, you know, it's easier. It's easier to fund somebody that has a proven track record. Uh, but if you're going to move the ball forward in a way that really impacts more lives, more communities, more neighborhoods, more people, then you can't accomplish that with the status quo uh, grantee model. You know, you've got to be willing to push the envelope and step into new projects. Be be entrepreneurial. Absolutely. And fund projects and, and, and organizations who are thinking in an entrepreneurial way. One of the programs that we're now involved with, uh, with the Duke Endowment in uh, Charlotte and a few other grant makers in North and South Carolina is looking at, and this is an interesting uh, thing, looking at empowering uh, uh, organizations that are run by people of color. And, uh, you know, that has become kind of a, a theme, if you will, uh, over the last several months because of a lot of for a lot of reasons. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, I'm not sure I even know who what organizations are run by people of color in you know wherever South Carolina. I know a few. Uh, but we're we're really trying to peel the onion back uh, with about ten or twelve of us that say, okay, not only do we want to know who they, who, where those organizations are, we want to know how healthy they are. We want to know what opportunities there are for funders intentionally coming in and saying, you know, statistics say 10, 15% on average of our funding goes to organizations run by people of color and 85% doesn't. We want to shift that. We want to shift that number to a larger percentage, and we're going to help you get there. So it's a good investment for us, and it's good for you. So it's it's an exciting project, I think. Uh, and 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 funders are now doing a better job, I think, of looking outward into the community than looking inward at their own process. Well, I, I think that's great. Uh, I think the other thing that I'm seeing more of, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just working with the good foundations, Tom. I don't know. (laughs) I'm seeing more of, look, it, it, it's not about who gets the branding credit for funding something. You know, one of the things I noticed early on in my nonprofit career was how funders, community foundations in some communities and some others were, were really, even though they didn't have to raise money they still relied on a brand and a brand reputation for people to, you know, particularly community foundations, cause they do have, you sure. know, people that are, that are building that fund. But the idea that, well, we did this project, that was us. 
Yeah. You know, we funded because of us, we did. And I've seen also a shift to, man, we got to stop talking about who gets the credit for this exactly. stuff. We have, here's the community indicators that we're trying to move. Here are the issues that people are really feeling on the ground. They couldn't care less which foundation solves it. Exactly. The ones that are in the, you know, and, uh, and so that's of course led to frameworks like collective impact and, and all these other things. But I think that's a big deal is that, I don't know. I, I hope that's the case. I hope there's less competition for the brand recognition of who's funding what and who's solving what in the community. Yeah. I think the big uh, challenge in South Carolina is a lot of funders are geographically constrained. You know, they, right. uh, they're stuck in one or two counties or, mm-hmm. or one community like Dr. Spruce and Lee is probably the one of the larger foundations in the state well it's just the florence area you know florence south carolina area it's not florence dylan you know marion it's not the region so um and it's all based on how your articles of incorporation are created and all that kind of thing we're statewide because the diocese of charleston covers the entire state and the sisters at providence had patients all over the state it was number one heart hospital for a long time for cardiovascular services. So, you know, uh, collective impact is great conceptually, but in certain places, Mm. the only collective impact some foundations can can have is in Florence, you know, as opposed to to statewide. So we have some limitations just based on how we're set up. Yeah, unless you can convince outside funders why there's a reason for them to invest in the work that you're doing there and how it might impact them. I want to ask a couple of questions that are sort of on two ends of a spectrum regarding the relationship between funders and fundees. Mm -hmm. The, the the, The philanthropic community, which we would say, you know, the foundations and the funders and the big wealthy donors, et cetera, and the nonprofit community that are out there providing the services, sort of achieving the missions. And one is the idea of accountability. And I'm going to tell you something I'm doing. uh, I'm in the middle of a doctoral dissertation study right now that you know about. And I'm studying the the way that nonprofits in South Carolina determine, measure, and report evidence of mission achievement. Mission achievement. Not how many people we serve necessarily, but achieving achieving the actual mission. Now, if the mission is stated in outputs, yeah, great. You're a niche organization. You're, you know, you, you, you really serve one very narrow population with a very specific need and service. Well, the output is the outcome in that case, it, particularly if it is like that true charity sort of thing we were Correct. talking about. You're right. But um, in looking at this, um, I, you're, you're, you're going to love this, I think. I was uh, talking with someone the other day and they said, you know, I was talking with and mentioned one of your staff at Sisters of Charity. And uh, we were talking about how when we're getting funding from the Sisters of Charity, they ask, how do you know you're making an impact? (laughs) And I wanted to stand up and shout and clap and go, go Sisters of Charity. (laughs) Um, So, uh, so it's out there. They're, they're feeling, and, and in this case, this nonprofit leader appreciated that. Now, a lot of them don't appreciate that question. What do you mean? How do I know? You know, stop asking me for evidence. We're doing good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. But, but in this case, you know, they, they really appreciated that idea. So I want to just get to, um, maybe I'll ask these two questions together since they're on two, since I'm trying to reconcile something here. So this is part one. 
how do how do funders and the the importance of funders holding their fundies accountable? Mm-hmm. That's a leadership tenet, right? Holding right. people accountable for results. On the other hand, we have this relationship that you and I have talked about, where there's a, an an at, at a minimum a perceived and more realistically a real uh, imbalance of power, right, between the funders and the fundees. Cause we got the money, right? The funders, we got the money. So we get to, we get to call the shots, so to speak. And again, there's a big, there's a, that's a real thing across the country. It, it happens. And some of them are very sort of thumbs on and almost dictatorial about it. Again, there has been a shift toward, look, we, the funders and the fundies are all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. We, the end goal is the same here. We're just serving different roles. So let's, let's partner together to achieve this thing. When that's the case, there shouldn't be any imbalance of power necessarily or perceived imbalance of power. So here's my question. How do you reconcile between the leadership tenant of holding fundies accountable and truly partnering with them and maybe even sharing that, that accountability for achieving the mission if we're truly partnering to try to, to meet a need and break down this um, this siloed feeling of being feeling threatened or feeling our voice isn't heard or we're just the, you know, we get the crumbs kind of thing. How do you reconcile those two things and create a leadership culture where there's true partnership between those sectors? It's a good, it's a good question. A little bit of a complicated question, but um, I I do think that we, we have a responsibility to work with our, uh, our grantees and potential grantees to make sure both parties Sisters of Charity Foundation and grantees, nonprofits, understanding what our vision is for success. And, um, you know, that may be uh, uh, counting heads or that may be counting heads to an ultimate goal of X, Y, Z. And so I think on the front end, through our uh, letter of intent that we we uh, give for uh, people to sort of a screening process. So we make sure everybody fits into the mission and values of what we're trying to uh, offer up as a foundation. And, and two is that we want every one of our uh, grants uh, program officers uh, to have a conversation with a potential grantee, even before we get down the road too far, because it's a, okay, we're not going to leave you out on that boat to kind of, you know, float around on your own. We're going to take you by the hand and we're going to walk you through. So we know each other. We know where you're coming from. You know where I, uh, we're, uh, we're coming from. And then when it gets to the application time, everybody agrees on what the best step forward is. You know, and I've got to pause right there before you move to any second or third points, because this is rich. Uh, and and I think speaks to the very heart of leadership period. What you're describing, at least is what I'm hearing, you're describing a clear and shared vision first and getting alignment on that vision first and having conversations so that the expectations on the front end are clear before we ever go into an applying for funds, let alone reporting and right. being accountable for the results. That's exactly right. I'm loving that because with that shared vision and alignment of vision, 
Yeah, you kind of, you should kind of know what you're walking into as a grantee, for example, and right. knowing this is my role and this is what the foundation is going to do, and we're mutually accountable. If your process is transactional and simply a application process reviewed by some either group of staff or board, and then a decision is made without a conversation at all, we feel like that's a real missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, uh, this I, in my early years, I've missed some good grants because I was basing it on what I was reading on paper, you know, 20 years ago. Or, and it was like, well, this is kind of, you know, not great. But then when I met those people later, you know, two or three years later, it's like, well, gosh, this is awesome. And, and it was unable, it, they weren't able to translate it from the work they did onto paper. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons we want our program people to be engaged, build a relationship with that nonprofit and, and really find out, dig deep, find out if it is a good fit, if they have the capabilities to, to do the work they're going to do. And if it is, then, and it's risky, then let's take the risk because it's worth the investment. That's so good. I had a, uh, I took a grant writing 101 course in the, at a community college years ago. And the instructor made this statement. And then later on, like several years later, she revised it. And I'll give you both and then I'll get your take on it. You can agree or disagree. She said in the class, grants that are national, regional and national in nature, the larger ones, content is king. You have to be able to good grant writing means good writing. You have to be able to tell the story, make the case. You got like content wins the day in a local foundation relationship wins the day. That's right. The content is in some cases, she said, I mean, in some cases the content is almost irrelevant. If there's a, if there's the right relationship there and politics and everything else come into play years ago, she revised that. And she said, you know, she goes, you remember when I said, and I said, yeah, she goes, I think that's changed. And I think I was wrong on that. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I think it's relationship is king period mm. national because now a lot of, a lot of nonprofits have figured out how to really foster the relationships with the Annie Casey foundation and Microsoft and Pew and the Ford foundation and, you know, down into the big regional things like Duke endowment and those kinds of things. And really while content is still important, relationship is king when, when, when trying to pursue grant funds from foundations. What do you think? I agree. I think that is, uh, is very true. Uh, and that, that's not to, uh, to weaken or discount the, uh, the content. The content is certainly a driving force, but you know what I've always preached uh, when I've been asked to speak to groups of, of grant writers and nonprofits is if the only time we ever hear from you is when you're asking for money, that's not good because why aren't we on your newsletter list? Why aren't we invited to your open house? Why aren't we uh, connected 364 other days a year Mm. rather than the one day that you send us a grant application? Mm. Because, you know, if that, that forces it to be transactional, uh, if, if in fact, that's the only time we communicate with you, 
but it, but if we, it's shared information, we're going to tell you about our grant making and all we're doing, and you're going to tell us about the work you're doing in your community, whether we funded you or not. Then we begin to build that relationship you're talking about that allows us sort of that trust and transparency that gives both of us a better comfort and better feeling and then ultimately better decisions can be made boy i mean we're at the heart of leadership right now in this conversation because you mentioned a a while ago how so many nonprofits lack formal training in leadership and it and it's not you know there's a difference between leadership and management Mm -hmm. so the the ability to craft a budget is a management ability right the ability to understand that the external engagement you have to have with influencers yeah is a leadership tenant and there we don't train for that we i mean but it's out there but it it's scarce uh the real leadership things that that it takes to do that because that's a and again going back to the nonprofits that are struggling you know and they have very little capacity they don't understand that no no they don't and and that's that's sort of a missing piece to the puzzle that that I think all of us in the sec- sector are trying to to uh, move move forward in a in a positive way. But uh, you know, there are a lot of intangibles in play in the relationship with uh, a grant a grant seeker, a grantee, and foundations that are you know not not visible, not completely visible, but important. You know, you're you're weighing the content of your application and all that you know, making your case, that is huge. But interaction, as I said earlier, uh, inviting us to a site visit uh, to let us see firsthand the, the kids you're helping in the after-school program. Let us witness the volunteers you've gotten who teach school all day and then come in after school to help mentor and coach these kids. Let us meet some of the parents and get their read on how you know, Johnny or Mary have improved in the classroom because of this after school program. But they feel threatened with those requests for invitations, don't they? Because they feel it like it's let us come in and micromanage and look over your shoulder and make sure you're doing it well. That's how the, that's how it's often perceived. Sometimes, yeah. So, uh, how, so how do you this is back to that second end of the continuum about the partnership between funders and, and nonprofits and that feeling of an imbalance of power. What needs to happen there to con- help continue that shift to, to more partnership. Well, one of the things we will say to a grantee is, look, we want to drive over and visit you because we want to help you celebrate the success of not only the program, but the kids you're, you're serving. Mm. You know, we're hearing good things. Your interim report tells us so much. We can only read so much on paper. So this is going to be a fun site visit. We're mm. not going to get our microscope out and look, you know, through it, we're coming over there to be part of your culture, you know, as your investor, as your partner, we're, we're there looking for good things. We want to help understand, you know, what's spot. And, and maybe when we go there, we're giving you 10, but we see that we're, you're underfunded mm. and my gosh, you know, they could handle 50 more kids if they had the resources. So maybe next time we give you 20, yeah, you know, or maybe we're at lunch with another foundation and we tell them a powerful story about some, you know, the and that's happened that you, before. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, it's not punitive. And I think that's the back to the area of trust 
in the relationship and that you've built a relationship. And now if I call up out of the blue and you've never talked to me and heard from me before and I, we haven't built any kind of camaraderie, then I'd be a little nervous too, you know, yeah. back at the, uh, at the grant, uh, grant site of the nonprofit. So, you know, it's a cultivation, a nurturing of this dynamic between funder and grantee that really doesn't have to be, you know, we are the funder up in the ivory tower and, you know, the grantees down here on the mm-hmm. ground. We really want it to be, uh, it's it's probably not equal, but we want it to be as close to equal as it can be. We're your biggest cheerleader. We're here to. You know, well, the, the mission and the cause are equal. That's you know, right. Like That's we're, exactly we're, again, right. Again, we're yeah. trying to achieve the same thing, and we just right. play different roles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Man, I love it. Um, man, there's so many things I want to talk about. I, I will say this. This might be a good time to to talk about something I think that really Im- impresses me, not just the statement, but the fact that I've watched you live it. One of the things that I think helps drive a more positive relationship between any two or more entities is just the respect, the civility, the professionalism and, and a word you, that, that I know you love and that's kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have a quote and a motto in life. I'm just going to share it with our readers here. It's, it's on your website, on your bio. And I love that you put it here because I think it's, it speaks volumes. It says there's no cost whatsoever for being kind to every person you encounter on a daily basis doesn't cost us anything. This single act can have a lasting effect on you and other people throughout your life, man. I could like to just sit and read that out loud five times and, and just it soak in a little bit richer each time. Where does this come from? Maybe, maybe this is a good time to kind of talk about, you know, where there was there a leader or two in your life that sort of (laughs) have impacted this. I know you to be, I mean, that's one of your, the things that's in your reputation, Tom, you're just a kind man. And yet, as our listeners have heard, very direct and clear, it's not, a you know, kindness yeah. doesn't mean weakness. No, it doesn't. Um, and so um, tell us where this comes from and, and how well, this has become a big value in your leadership. You got time for me to tell you a, a quick story? Absolutely. When uh, I grew up in rural West Virginia, uh, and it wasn't the coal country. It wasn't the steel mills. It was the agricultural uh, section, the central part of the state, about 50 miles northwest of Charleston, the state capital. Um, and my grandfather was a banker and a farmer, and he had a um, cattle uh, farm, and, and my dad worked in for the Department of Agriculture. And so we lived in this small town. A about banker and a farmer. What, you know, back just, then, that's so yeah, awesome. Isn't it awesome? He'd get, he'd clo- the bank would f- formally close at two, you know, no more customers back then. And he'd get in his Jeep and drive 14 miles out to his cattle farm. That's and, rich. You know, it is. So... This thing happened uh, to me personally, and I, I want this kind of illustrates. I, it probably defined my thinking around this. Um, I was in the first grade, and I was in the back of the room. We had these long uh, rows, you know, maybe ten per row, three, four rows, depending. I think we had thirty-eight kids in my fr- uh, first grade class. One teacher. God bless her. You know, uh, <laughs> so sitting next to me was a a, a young man um 
uh, who um, we, we, we had that day crayons and paste and those dull scissors and this paper and all that. And I was working and I noticed uh, he didn't have any crayons. And so I shared some paper and crayons with him. Uh, and I, th- I think he was from, a, you know, not, uh, you know, he was from out in the country and I really didn't know what their circumstances was. Uh, or were. Uh, so I went home that night and I, I repeated that, you know, how was your day? And I said to my mom and dad at the dinner table, yeah, it was great. I met this new friend. And then I explained that, you know, he didn't have any supplies. Uh, and my dad asked me for his name and got out the small phone book and looked something up and, and something rang a bell with him. So he said, for our listeners, a phone book is something <laughs> that we used to use. So, so he got on the party line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyone that knows what a, a princess phone is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> keep, keep going. He got the phone book. Yeah. And so so he says, we're going to town. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to town for? You know, I'm seven or six. So we go down to the local five and dime. And dad says, what are the supplies you need? And he says, well, what, what do you mean? Well, what, what, do you, what do you use, you know, at your desk that you're supposed to bring? I said, well, paste and, you know, some uh, scissors and whatever it was. So, so he gathers it up and buys it, and we get in the car, and, and, and we go out in the country, you know. And he's like, I'm like, where are we going? He said, just watch. And so we went up this muddy old dirt road, and there's this shack up on the right. And he said, now, that's where your friend lives. Um, and I said, yeah, uh, I guess so. You're telling me. And, and he says, well, here. And he got a cardboard box out of the back seat, and he put all those supplies in. And he was parked about maybe 50, 100 feet from the house itself, raining really hard. He said, now, you take this and take it up there you take it I love. yeah so dad stayed back in the car pouring rain i went up knocked on the door his mother came to the door and i asked for him and he came and i was kind of confused nervous i guess and i handed that to him and dad said now when you say this to him you say this is for you this is yours so there's no confusion i've recognized later and so i gave him the supplies came back to the car got in raining and dad says now, son, nobody else needs to know about this. Uh, We've just given him something to help him. So we need to, this is not something we need to talk to anybody about. Do you understand? And he said, and I said, absolutely. And, and so we drove off and this is the most unbelievable part of the story. Um, probably 25, 30 years later, I'm in a home to visit my elderly parents. And this guy comes up to me. I don't know him. He's got a, you know, a a small beard. He's very slim, you know, 37, 36 years old. And he goes, are you Tom Keith? I said, yeah, I didn't have a clue who he was. I mean, and he goes, I'm so-and-so. He said, and I'm thinking, okay. And he says, I want to thank you for something. And I'm like, first of all, who the heck are you? And second of all, what would you have to thank me? And he recounted that story for me of, what happened and he said you know i just told that story down at my church in kentucky i am a pastor down at this church in the country and i told them about that act of kindness from you and 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 i'm like wow 
and, and it just kind of set off uh, something in my brain that that something so simple and little as that giving you know supplies mentioning to my dad he's setting it all up letting me deliver and then getting out of the way and let that young man you know he said tom you made me feel a, instantly feel a, a part of that class says before oh, i was i was a, an outlier I, I i felt self-conscious i didn't have anything i needed than I did, so I felt like I belonged. And I'm like, you're telling me all this 30-some years later, and I never even really recognized the impact mm. that a small act of kindness can have on somebody? And it really opened my eyes to, hey, man, there's an opportunity here every day. If, we'll, if we're looking for it and we envision it, we see it, we can do that. So that's that was my motto, and that it probably uh, was the uh, the the point of it really you know, launching. All right, I'm just <laughs> good night. So you're, and here you are now in the perfect professional role to bring that back around because isn't isn't that the conversation we're trying to have we don't do it very well i don't think right now in this country of having this conversation no, but isn't this right. the one we're actually trying to have yeah i you know if, if we're willing to um kind of put all our labels down you mm. know put all our uh political whatever down and and we just stand there and we have no preconceived anything about anybody i think we can have some real conversations that really can can help us and real healthy conversations mm. you know and I, I think that's what's lacking that we've become so um stereotyped in so many different categories that, uh, you know, whether it's political, liberal, conservative, or, you know, whatever the case may be, I think people have these perceptions right when you walk in the room. That Patrick Jinks, I bet you he's, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, you know. Yeah, I kind get of that person. a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, he's... <laughs> He's he's uh he's got a beard. He probably is a member of the Sierra Club or yeah, something, you no, know. That's right. <laughs> no, I boy, you're so right. And you know, we've got our just little memberships that we identify with and we we stay on we stay on a particular side and sometimes it's not even our own perception. It's somebody else's that we've just bought into because we bought into something else that that person or group or whatever um, I'm going to read it again because I, I really do think this is the conversation. There's no cost whatsoever for being kind to every person you encounter on a daily basis. The single act can have a lasting effect on you and other people throughout your life, just as it did in your story. And, you know, um, we had um, a, a group of wonderful ladies on uh, a few months ago that, that uh, co-authored a book. And um, I asked one of them, who are some of the leaders in your life that impacted you, you know, cause I hear, well, you know, I had a third grade teacher or my father or mm -hmm. whatever. And she said, you know, I think that some of the people that had the most impact on me, their faces are sort of grayed out to me. They're people who were just in the community doing good things that had an impact on me that I couldn't tell you their names. I couldn't kind of like you, what you were yeah. saying, you didn't, you didn't make the connection until, no. until later when you could sort of cognitively grasp that. 
and just thought, what an amazing picture of all the leaders in our lives whose faces might be grayed out to us and whose names we may have never even known. But you took but, little bits and pieces. And we remember it. And there's one. an emotional feeling that comes up when we, when we think about it or that when we remember it. Yeah. And we don't realize how much those small things have actually shaped the bigger steps and transitions that we've made. That in is our lives. fantastic. That is a fantastic analogy. Your well, story is yeah. a perfect example of that. Uh, Tom, this is, man, I, so now I just want to keep on going, but, but we won't, we'll respect your time and, and in our listeners as well. I, I can't say thank you enough for, for doing this and, and coming on and, and just sharing that, that powerful, this is about, this is about humans. It's not about budgets and grants and papers and organizations. And it's, it's about humans, about people. And uh, you've, you've made it that way for us. Uh, one last question that I ask all of our guests, if you had the, the number one piece of advice for the, the Tom Keith, you know, statement of leadership that all leaders should pay attention to, what would that be? I, you know, I think uh, there are a lot of elements to being a good leader. Uh, I see leaders sometimes trying so hard that they become their own worst obstacle. Mm. And uh, I think leaders have to be willing to be flexible. Mm. And, you know, you have you, every, managing people is a little bit easier because you have a, you know, an HR personnel manual and you have policies and procedures. And so you can say, well, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Ms. Jones, you know, you have been late 22 minutes the last uh, lunch hour, <laughs> last five lunch hours, and I'm going to have to write that down. You know, that doesn't. That's management and holding people accountable. Managed. Leadership, you know, it's different. I mean, you always need to be looking ahead. You always need to be saying, okay, troops, you know, it's safe. Mm. You know, follow me. Let's go. We're, it's safe to cross this bunker or this hill. We're, we're in this thing together, and they've got to trust that. And, you know, today it may be sunshine, tomorrow it may be raining, the next day it may be snowing, the next day the wind may be blowing 40 miles an hour. But regardless, your troops and, and the people that work with you always have to trust you, and they're only going to trust you if you earn that trust. Mm. You've got to earn that trust. You can't just tell somebody to do something because I want you to do it. You've got to work with them every day on building that trust and trust levels vary. You know, some people are very untrusting. Other people are like, I I'm in, you know? And so you got to treat each person, whether it's a board member, staff person, volunteer with the level of trust and respect that they deserve, that they deserve. Mm -hmm. I think often we, we take people for granted. And when we do that, uh, we're losing, I think, or misunderstanding one of our most valuable assets, which, you know, in the nonprofit sector are our leaders. They are our, our I mean, our, our staff and our volunteers and, of course, our board members. So, you know, to me, we're in the relationship business. Sure, we have money. We have a lot of uh, other tools to offer up. But at the end of the day, a good leader has to see ahead build on the skills that his team has or her team and take it uh, into the future. And if you're doing th- something one way today, doesn't mean you have to do it that same way tomorrow. You really have to be flexible and the ability to adjust your schedule. I think that makes a great leader. 
in the future. Well, I love it. It hurt a little bit when you said the very first part of that, which is about leaders getting in their own way. That hurt. I've done it. <laughs> I, I think I just keep doing it for some reason. So that's a good reminder. Tom, thanks so much. This is so rich. Uh, leaders, you know why we brought this guy on the air today. Um, be kind to people. Doesn't cost you anything. It's a leadership tenant. It's a human tenant. Lead on.